Welcome to Er Garcia, a podcast of work, faith, theology, and economics, arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. And welcome to Ergasia. My name is Brendan Byrne, and I have the pleasure of being your host. In this episode, we continue our exploration of the book Hard Work Never Killed Anybody, How the Idolization of Work Sustains This Deadly Lie, by John Bottomley, published by Morningstar Publishing in 2015. In the last episode, we explored three of the five experiences cited by Bottomley of how the prophetic imagination can lead to the integration of the experience of the victims of work-related harm into the healing and transformative possibilities of the biblical witness. In this episode, we explore the remaining two experiences which revolve around our culture's need to find someone to blame as well as how journeying into death can lead to freedom and life. So without any further ado, let us begin Ergasia episode 28, Hard Work Never Killed Anyone, part 9b, Work and Life Renewed, Prophetic Dreaming, Integrating Experience and Scripture. Experience 4. Finding someone to blame. When a death from a work-related incident occurs in Australia, this triggers an investigation by the relevant statutory authorities into the cause of that death. Bottomley recalls one such incident in the mid-1990s. The relevant investigator duly arrived at the scene of a workplace fatality carried out an investigation and concluded that the fatality was the result of a genuine, unavoidable accident that warranted no further investigation. The employer was therefore surprised when the investigator returned the next day and explained that his superiors were not satisfied with his initial conclusions and had ordered him to collect more evidence with a view to enabling a prosecution that would serve as an example to other employers. For Bottomley, this need to find a person or persons upon whom to fix the blame serves the purpose of enabling everyone else to regard themselves as blameless, irrespective of their level of involvement in or culpability for work-related harm and death. This view emerged from Bottomley's own experience of involvement in support programs for the families of those bereaved by a workplace death. Time and again, the family members blamed the employer for the death that had caused them so much grief. 
As a result, Bottomley found himself accepting their beliefs about where the blame for these deaths lay, that it was wholly and solely the responsibility of employers. But Bottomley began to challenge his own acceptance of this belief after a traumatic episode in which a woman who had been a founding member of the support group to which he ministered broke away and formed her own organisation. Surprised and hurt by this event, Bottomley and his colleagues experienced a sustained period of anxiety and stress. Bottomley's reflections during this period enabled him to gradually realise how his own fear of this woman's furious grief at the death of her father in a work-related incident had made him a captive to her anger and to the agenda of blame-fixing which it fueled. His own need for acceptance had resulted in him silencing his own doubts about these matters in which she held strong opinions. Following Bottomley's heart surgery, the experience of personal incapacity and the trauma of a workplace disruption once he returned to work caused him to engage in a practice of daily meditation and honest recording of his thoughts and feelings. Through this process, he experienced the insight that the healing he needed lay in being free from the need to find someone upon whom he could fix the blame for the chaos that had engulfed his life. For Bottomley, the origin of this healing was located in God's compassionate forgiveness, which in turn shapes the prophetic imagination. When Isaiah tried to avoid God's summons to prophecy by claiming he was a person of unclean lips, an angel from heaven touched his mouth with a, with a burning coal. In this dramatic image, God declared that Isaiah had been liberated from his uncleanliness. In the same manner, Bottomley experienced the grace of God that forgave him his own complicity and in turn set him free from the need to blame others for the trauma of division and separation. This experience enabled Bottomley to see the world around him with new eyes. Bottomley was able to facilitate, through patient negotiation, a meeting between a woman whose brother had been killed at work and the CEO of the National Construction Company for whom he was working at the time of his death. This process in turn enabled Bottomley to realise the grief which employers also experience in the event of a workplace fatality. Over the course of the next couple of years, as Bottomley engaged in a series of research projects, he noticed that some of the trade unions with which he had previously engaged became more suspicious of him because of his preparedness to engage with employers. At the same time, as Bottomley's investigations into the impacts of restructuring and redundancy on employee stress and harm continued, some employer groups became critical of his work. These seem to Bottomley the criticisms and suspicions of those who have a vested interest in the established order, which in turn alerted him to one of the paradoxes implicit in his own healing that when your eyes are open to the depths of pain and brokenness in human life, 
the guardians of existing orders and power structures become fearful of what you might do and say. These developments enabled Bottomley to see that the world of work as it is constructed in modernity is built upon a series of closed systems and ideologies regarding the manner in which work relationships should be understood. However, because these foundations are closed, they shut out certain aspects of what it means to be fully human. This shutting out blinds us to the disintegration of the human self that is initiated by the need to prove our control over and our success through work that is the bitter fruit of the ideology of hard work. Bottomley came to understand that his spiritual resources had been blinded to the nature of the crisis precipitated by the disintegration of the support group to whom he ministered and to his own responsibility for his part in that crisis. The idolatry of hard work is at the front line of a spiritual conflict in modernity, one in which that idolatry's principal defense is to shift away from itself the blame for the destructive impact of its demands on human life. The blindness to the sin and death precipitated by the lie that hard work never killed anybody institutes a false ethic that causes us to blame others for the terrible toll which it inflicts. For bottomly, this blindness and the healing that can come despite it are articulated in the account of the man born blind in the Gospel according to John. The disciples question, was the man blind because of his own sin or because of a sin committed by his parents, reflects a common human belief that sin is the cause of suffering and that God punishes or rewards people according to their moral attributes. In this framework, Tragedy simply cannot just happen. Someone, somewhere, must be to blame. Jesus, however, is not interested in the disciples' question, or in the schema of moral righteousness that assigns blame to others. This is entirely at odds with the loving graciousness of God that is at the heart of the gospel Jesus proclaims. Blame is not the point. The man is merely blind. Jesus, however, can do something about it. That's the point. And in making that point, Jesus challenges the disciples to come down from their high horse of moral superiority and engage in the work of healing instead. For bottomly, Jesus' refusal to blame the blind man for his disability illustrates his own spiritual blindness in the way he had gone about his work with the bereavement support group. He had stayed at a distance that kept him safe from the complexity of human suffering in work-related contexts. Jesus' challenge to the disciples represents a challenge to Bottomley's and to our quest to find someone to blame in order to avoid having to engage with our own complicity in sin and death, as well as the work necessary to bring about healing and renewal. But this challenge and its expression in Jesus' healing 
of the man born blind immediately provokes a response from the vested interests of the established order. The initial encounter between Jesus and the man born blind occupies only seven verses in chapter 9 of the Gospel according to John. What then follows are 34 verses of the man being harassed, bullied and finally expelled from the community of faith by the religious authorities. The man testifies to Jesus' identity as the fulfillment of God's covenant with Israel. Jesus in turn condemns as blind the self-interest of the religious and political authorities. In doing so, Jesus finally answers the disciples' question about the origin of blindness. It is not sin that causes blindness, but blindness that causes sin. It is the blindness of not trusting and living within God's grace. The blindness of the self-protection and self-justification that seeks to lay the blame on others. This is what causes the sin of injustice. Yet, even in the midst of our self-inflicted blindness, light may shine forth. Christ crucified is present in our anguish at the daily toll in death and suffering which our construction of work inflicts upon us. Christ yearns to touch our closed political and economic ideologies in order to open our eyes to the fullness of human life located in God's mercy and justice. As the body of Christ, it is the mission of the church to listen to and speak about the experience of those who have been harmed by the lie that work is of ultimate importance in human life. But to do this, the church must also confess its complicity in this suffering. In the addiction to achievement and the workaholic tendencies to which its own participation in the ideology of hard work give rise. The renewal of the world of work will only come with the inauguration of a work ethic that respects the value of human life and which shapes the life of the church, of industry, of commerce and of the whole of society in such a way as respects the experience and stories of those who have been harmed by or who have suffered through work-related causes. Only when employers, managers, workers, unions, politicians and policy makers understand the relationship of the various factors embedded in the narratives of work-related harm will we be liberated from the need to blame others for the suffering imposed upon us by the idolatry of hard work. Only then will we be healed of that blindness that shields us from our complicity in the beliefs, structures and relationship that do violence to our dignity as human beings.
Experience 5 Journeying with Death During Bottomley's first placement in a suburban congregation, he was approached by a parishioner one morning who asked him to visit her father who was dying and who wished to receive communion before he died. Bottomley had never visited a dying person before and kept putting the visit off until he realised that the next Sunday was approaching when he would have to see the parishioner once more. On the Saturday morning, Bottomley visited the parishioner's house where her father was living, only to be told that he had died the previous night. This experience taught Bottomley that his fear of death had prevented him from properly ministering to the dying man. This fear of death was inconsistent with the gospel message of the resurrection and exposed for Bottomley the need to trust in Jesus' love for him and his ministry even in the midst of death. He had been called by Christ to be a minister and would be equipped for the task. For Bottomley this necessity to trust came to the fore in the early hours of one Sunday morning when he was woken from his sleep by the ringing telephone. It was his mother calling to inform him that his father had suffered a massive heart attack and had died. After his initial grief, Bottomley visited his sister. Their parents had been in England, holidaying with their brother and his family at the time of their father's death. Bottomley agreed with his sister that she would fly to England to assist his mother while preparations for a thanksgiving service for his father continued at home. Bottomley was not in congregational ministry at the time of his father's death and the decision was made to hold the service at the parental home. Working and speaking across time zones, the service was prepared by the family members who shared the planning and responsibility for the conduct of the service. In the midst of devastating loss, Bottomley experienced the raw beauty of the intimacy occasioned by this shared endeavour. For months after the service, Bottomley's mother was still being contacted by people who had attended the service and who felt compelled to talk about the sense of shared love by which they were upheld during the service. Christ, who had demanded from Bottomley wholehearted trust in his power over death, had also met him in the heartbreaking depths of grief with the healing mystery of grace. In this paradox, Death's power to create nothingness is met and overcome by the measureless depths of God's love in Christ. The idolatry of hard work and the separation of the world of work from the human reality of death and grief operates to elevate the power of death over our need to trust in the death-defying love of God. On one occasion, Bottomley interviewed an administration worker employed by a Uniting Church agency who told him that on the first anniversary of her mother's death she retreated to the female toilets in order to cry and give voice to her grief. 
in this supposedly Christian workplace, it was the only safe space where she felt she could weep. On another occasion, a clerical assistant at a university was facing a formal disciplinary hearing for poor work performance when it was revealed that for the previous six months she had been nursing her dying father at home and that he had only recently died. In an institution of higher learning, the clerical assistant had not felt safe enough to share the burden of her grief with any of her colleagues. Finally, Bottomley encountered the wife of a businessman who had died in a road accident. The last time any of his business partners had been in contact with her was three months after her husband's death. By the time Bottomley encountered the widow, four years had passed without any further contact. Her sense of bitterness at their abandonment weighed more heavily upon her than her grief at her husband's death. Ours is a culture that fills people with a fear of death, so much so that we often abandon those who are grieving to isolation and solitude. This is the same fear of death that in his first ministry prevented Bottomley from visiting the dying father of one of his parishioners. It is a fear that is woven into the rationalist culture of endless economic progress, precisely because it challenges the myth that we are in charge of the world and of our destinies. Recognizing this challenge, our culture seeks to ignore the reality of death, to sweep it under the carpet. But the effect of this is to promote the malaise of spiritual decay. This decay is the root of the darkness and decline that pervades the social, political, economic and environmental life of Western society. After his father's death, the agency Bottomley worked for applied for and received a grant to research the ways in which grieving people mourned the death of their loved ones. The two years Bottomley spent researching the rituals and ceremonies developed by grieving people affirmed the realization that death must be respected rather than feared. Reflecting on how the journey through grief had provided many with healing over sustained periods of time, he understood how metaphorically deeply they had inhaled the stench of death only to find life and renewal rather than fear and emptiness. The subjects of Bottomley's research had taken the time to prepare with family and friends for how they would grieve their loved one's death. They had striven to embrace the many voices that reflected the deceased person's network of human relationships. They acknowledged the larger mystery of love that drew them together in remembrance and thanksgiving. They acknowledged the physical reality of death and of their loss. And in the renewal of love that came to fruition through this process of grieving, they experienced a continuing bond with the deceased that in turn freed them to enter 
into a new relationship with their departed loved one. Through this research, Bottomley discovered that the journey back to life for those who grieve commences with embracing the painful truths that death brings. The mystery of life and its meaning comes through the journey of grief as we are accompanied by the steadfast presence of God's love in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the same journey that brings hopeful news to the living dead enslaved by the idolatry of hard work inviting them to a space of grieving and lament that can lead back into the wholeness of life. Bottomley links his own experiences with death with the account of Jesus' response to the death of Lazarus, which is recorded in the Gospel according to John. Jesus is told that Lazarus is gravely ill, but remains a further two days in the place where he is staying. When he finally says it is time to go, his disciples argue against this, claiming that it is unsafe because the religious and secular authorities are plotting against him. Jesus' response to the disciples sharpens our awareness of the reality of death. This is no mere illness that, that Jesus is dealing with. It is nothing less than the extinction of life. By stripping away the comforting euphemisms we use for death, like falling asleep, Jesus is teaching his followers to face the unadorned reality of death itself. When Jesus arrives at the village where Lazarus lived, Martha greets him with the full force of her heartbroken sorrow. Her sister Mary, who is praying in accordance with Jewish funeral rituals, begins to weep when she realizes Jesus has arrived. The sight of her grief and of the grief of those around her touches Jesus deeply. Jesus is taken to the place where Lazarus is buried and in his turn weeps. This moving scene offers a glimpse into the heart of God, the light of divine love in the presence of death. This is a moment in which heaven and earth intersect in the person of Jesus embodying the truth of God's love for suffering humanity. This is the point at which God demands of us that we trust in God's love in the person of Christ, not merely in the form of intellectual assent as Martha does, but wholeheartedly holding nothing back in the vulnerability of our mortality. And it is at this moment that Jesus commands that the stone be rolled away from the entrance to Lazarus' tomb, a command from which the people recoil, dreading the stench of death that will come from within. But this too is the moment at which Jesus has ceased merely teaching his disciples. The time of response has arrived instead. Jesus prays, and with a loud voice commands Lazarus to come out of the tomb, and Lazarus emerges, alive, bound in the ritual cloths of death. Jesus commands the people, unbind him and let him go free. 
reflecting on this account from the Gospel according to John through the lens of his own experience, Bottomley argues that the church is charged with the command to speak the word of freedom to a world that clings like grim death to the illusion that hard work is sufficient ground upon which to live and have our being, that through work we can control our world and our destinies, staving off death in pursuit of endless growth and consumption. We know it is a myth, we know it is an illusion, and yet even as we speak of death as falling asleep, so we hide the true nature of our reality from ourselves. This passage from John illustrates the truth that Christ seeks to demonstrate to us our need to step forward with the faith that God has given us rich resources for living in our tradition of ritual and ceremony. But in order to live this truth, the church needs to acknowledge that it too has hidden from the truth of death through the various mechanisms of theological correctness, technological gadgetry, pastoral workaholism, and liturgical sentimentality. And yet, despite this, it is not too late to hear the command which Christ issues against death's power over the church. Unbind them and let them go free. conclude this episode of Ergasia. In the next episode, we will examine Bottomley's views about how the solidarity of hope in devastating circumstances reflects the governance of God over the world. In the meantime, to leave your thoughts about this podcast or to offer any suggestions or ideas for future subjects, please go to the webpage at www ergasia.podbean.com or go to the podcast pages on Facebook and Twitter. I hope to have the pleasure of your company for the next episode. I am your host, Brendan Byrne. Goodbye for now. have been listening to Ergasia, a podcast of faith, work, theology and economics arranged and presented by Brendan Byrne. For more information, please go to www.ergasia.podbean.com.